Brothers and sisters, this morning we look uh, to the uh, the passage or to the uh, to what is perhaps the most famous verse of Romans eight. You can disagree with that, but I think that's the case. Uh, Romans eight verse twenty eight, and it's a great comfort to us as believers in Christ. We 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 have this promise that we know that. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Let me say that, let me say that again, although, although you probably know it well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to to his purpose again Romans 8 verse 28 and uh, let's just start by looking at each part of this um, first we know we know which which puts a, a certain emphasis emphasis on the knowledge of faith we know that the Christian faith is not just the matter of what we think uh, what we invent uh, or what we hope for in any kind of a, any kind of a, of an uncertain way, we know, says Paul, that all things work together for our good. That's worth emphasizing, is it not? And who is this promise for? Or, or maybe better put, who is this promise made to? It's to those who love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And it might be easy to say, uh, oh, sure, I, I love God. God is swell. Um, I just love him to no end. So, so we need to be careful here not to interject some romanticized understanding of loving God. According to Scripture, what does it mean to love God? It means to know Him as He is. It means to accept Him as He has revealed Himself. It means to trust Him and to worship Him as He has made Himself known to us in Christ Jesus. Then comes an amazing superlative uh, an extreme, a, a fullness, all things, not some things and, and not even most things, but all things work together for good. But here is the, here is the point where Romans 8.28 uh, might become a, a kind of platitude, uh, uh, just a quaint saying, something to say and to, and to shield ourselves from bad thoughts when times are currently good for us. You see, it's, it's much easier to know and, and trust that all things work together for good when things are going well, when we're not suffering, when we're not experiencing grief and pain. But what good is there to be found in the death of a spouse? Uh, what good, even good from God, what good can be found in the death of a child? Over the past 
as was mentioned earlier, um, uh, over the past several days, the church has experienced the death of not one, not two, but three prominent leaders in the church. Tim Keller um, succumbing to pancreatic cancer, uh, Harry Reeder, maybe one that you hadn't heard about, um, another uh, PCA pastor died this week in a car accident. Closer to home, Gordon Ketty has died uh, after uh, a prolonged battle with illness. And it's easy for us to say, is it not? Well, that's, that's too bad, but all things work together for good. But what if it happens to us? And I'm sure it has happened to you already. Um, can we really say, in the experience of darkest grief, that all things work together for good? And if it does happen to us, and if we are taking Romans 8.28 too much in a platitudinous way, are we not left to think, well, maybe I... Maybe I don't love God enough. Uh, That's why I'm suffering grief. After all, the promise is for those who love God. Maybe things have gone awry in my life because I don't love God enough. So what we need is to hear Romans 8.28 along with Romans 8.29 and 30. What we need is an eternal perspective on our lives and, uh, and upon our experience in this world. Romans 8.28 is, is not a bad verse to print out and post it on your refrigerator. But it must be understood, which I would hope to show us this morning. It must be understood from an eternal perspective. So... So moving from a a quite limited understanding of Romans 8.28, which is likely to leave us disappointed and disillusioned at some point in our life, instead to an eternal perspective on Romans 8.28, the first point is the foreknowledge of God. Because the word of God reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And and verse 29 adds in, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here here we have what we might call uh, an introduction to the mind of God. There are those uh, people, of course, who say there is no God. And we can understand their atheism. No God means no judgment. Atheism is one way to deal with your conscience, uh, which tells you that you are a sinner and that you deserve judgment. Maybe all you need is a a bit more evolution uh, to free you from any thought of God and, and a guilty conscience. But what we don't seem to realize is is that to deny the existence of God is to refuse the entire mind of God. Uh, 
In other words, to deny the existence of God is to deny any thought, any logic, any sense of moral order and justice in this world. So to deny the existence of God in order to exonerate yourself requires that you also give up any hope of justice, even in the face of the horrific injustices committed in this world. It's a classic example, maybe the best example ever of going from the frying pan into the fire when we deny the existence of God. The foreknowledge of God is a reference to the, to the mind of God. The, the teaching of God's word about the foreknowledge of God is a, is a teaching that is meant to, to meet us in what we already know. We truly do already know. Uh, we truly know it even as we, we look at creation and we see the birds and the trees and as we take note of what a beautiful spring we've, we've, uh, we've had as we look at the mountains and, and the seas, how can we not know that there is a mind behind all that exists? And how can we not know that, that this divine mind is good and just and filled with the idea of blessing for all the creatures that he has created. So we really need to start with the foreknowledge of God. Because it's the foreknowledge by which God created all things. It's sin that makes the atheist. It's sin and rebellion that prompts man to deny the very existence of God, even more the inherent goodness of God, which we see all around us and experience every day. Here's a distinction that we, we need to make when we talk about the knowledge of God. It, uh, it's a distinction made by way of the meaning of the word of. Uh, when we hear reference to the knowledge of God... We probably first think of our knowledge about God, our knowledge of God. But consider that the knowledge of God can also refer to God's own knowledge. His knowledge certainly about himself, which becomes our knowledge when he reveals himself to us. But the knowledge of God refers to his, his mind uh, what he thinks and, and, and what he knows, including his plans and his purpose and his promises. This is what Paul is getting at when he writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We will get to the predestination part. But we really do need to start with God's foreknowledge because it's a reference to the mind of God. And, and the mind of God is what we see in, in all that God has created. We should be able to understand this because you don't know my mind and, and I don't know what you're thinking until we act on what we think or don't act. If you didn't mow the lawn yesterday... 
you revealed your mind that you didn't think that the lawn needed to be mowed, at least that it didn't need to be mowed yesterday. Your mind was made known by what you did or didn't do. And so it is with the mind of God. And so it is with all of creation as a revelation of the mind of God. So yes, the knowledge of God refers to our knowledge of God. But the knowledge of God must first refer to God's own knowledge of himself and the knowledge that he obviously has of himself in order to make known to us. And all of this might sound rather philosophical, maybe kind of deep and esoteric, but it's essential. Lest we, lest we think of God according to our own minds, lest we create a God in our own image, rather than knowing that he has created us in his image. He, he is the original, we might say. He is the standard of all things. He is God. The God who has created all things and whose mind is the originator of all things. Next is the predestination of God. The Apostle Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The order here, foreknowledge and then predestination, forbids us to think that God foreknew something and then acted according to what he foreknew. If God foreknew a certain destiny of things, then why would he need to predestine what he already knew? Instead, the two go together. God's foreknowledge and his predestination grants to us the assurance of his grace and his gracious action in our lives. And here we see more of, of the great significance of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here is the teaching of Scripture to, to keep us from saying, oh, but, but maybe I, I don't love God enough because the text does say if you love God. No, it doesn't say if you love God. And that certainly doesn't say if you just roll up your sleeves and get busy and start loving God more, you should love God more, then he will make all things work together for your good. The point instead is to, is to say, to, to teach, that as we have come to believe in Christ, then we are those who have been given to love God and as we have been given to love God, then we existed. We know that we existed in the mind of God. We were part of the predestined plan of God, even, for, even from all eternity. It, it, it makes our head spin, does it not? It, there is a great mystery here, and we can't deny that, but... But it fits with, with the triune being of God. There, there are certain teachings of Scripture that are clear, like the Trinity and like God's predestination. 
At face value, there is no question about what we are being taught. And yet, if it goes beyond our understanding, should, should, we, should that surprise us when we are, after all, talking about God and the mind of God? Given the goodness of God, should it surprise us to, to hear good things about God? It, uh, but given the infinity and the, the eternity of God, should it surprise us to hear things about God that, that go well beyond our full understanding? This is why we mustn't hear about God's predestination of all things and say, well, I, I don't understand that, so that can't possibly be true. Really, your understanding of something is the measure of whether it's true or not. And yet, at the very same time, surely we can grasp this truth that if we could fully understand God, if we could fully understand God, then He wouldn't be God. Or we would somehow be equal to Him. And we would not be moved to worship Him. We would only hold in contempt the God that we have invented for ourselves. Uh, think of it this way, that, that if you enrolled in, a, in a, a, a class, a course of study at some school, and, uh, and on the first day of class, uh, the professor handed you a copy of Dick and Jane, uh, you would probably quickly withdraw from the class and ask for your money back. So it's pride that that makes anyone think or to say, I don't understand this, so it cannot be true. And it's humility before God to receive his truth and his revelation and to say, praise be to this God. Praise be to this God. What perfect sense it makes that in hearing about God, I quickly learn that I will not be able to understand the fullness of his being. And the Apostle Paul doesn't refer to God's predestination in, in order to confound us, neither to pull rank on us as, as an apostle. He doesn't say, uh, well, you don't understand this, but I do, and so you just need to listen to me and, and everything else that I have to say to you. Instead, this is for our comfort. Paul is, a, is being a pastor here. This is for our assurance to know that faith is the work of God. Faith is the gift of God. To be a believer in Christ is certainly your decision. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. You know that verse from Joshua 24. The same call that Joshua put before Israel in in Joshua 24 needs to be heard by us today. This day, he said, choose for yourself whom you will serve. But your answer, your answer depends upon the work of God in your heart. And the predestination of God for your salvation. Answer, yes, I will serve the Lord. I will believe in Christ. I will be saved by faith. And you will have revealed something born from eternity. That's what Paul is teaching. Answer no, and the same thing is true, according to the plain teaching of God's Word.
And we can simplify it even more if we, if we want to. Right now, you could, you could raise your hand. You could scratch your nose. You could stand up and, and walk out of here. But whatever you do, it is predestined by God. And that doesn't mean that we control the predestined will of God, but only that by our actions we reveal the will of God. And, th- and that certainly is a powerful thing, that as creatures made in the image of God, we have the power to reveal the predestined will of God, whether for our salvation or for our damnation. And that's why it ought to be terrifying. It it. it Probably isn't immediately terrifying to the unbeliever, but, but it should be terrifying for anyone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to walk away. You say, oh, that's just church stuff. Uh, that's boring. That's, that's going to disrupt my life. Uh, believing in Christ is going to keep me from doing the things that I want to do. But unbelief only reveals at least for the time, the eternal will of God. While on the other hand, belief, faith, conversion also reveals the will of God, but for your salvation. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 1, a very parallel passage to Romans 8. In in Ephesians 1, Paul is calling for the praise of God, which is why we heard it as the call to worship this morning. Uh, and, and he is calling for the praise of God on the basis of God's revealed will for the salvation of those whom he has willed to be saved. Some people want to say, oh, that, you know, that predestination stuff, that's, you know, that's, that's not for me. That's for the, the theologians in their ivory towers. Not so, says Paul, teaches Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. There's that word again. The word that Paul is not shy to use as he writes to the church and as he preaches God's word, in love, in love he predestined you. So Paul even connects it with the love of God. Do you, do you know that God is love? Well, sure, he loves me because he loves everybody. No, you should know that God loves you because he predestined you. And he did so before the foundation of the world. Well, how do I know that he predestined me before the foundation of the world? Because you are a believer in Christ. And you wouldn't be a believer in Christ except that he predestined you. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. That is, in Christ. You see, this is how God gets praise. 
He's not going to wait for your will, for you to decide by your good graces to worship Him. No, it is His will that you should worship Him. And here's the truth revealed, that He predestined you to be a recipient of His grace, to change your heart, to draw you to Himself, to bring you to share in the reward of Christ. And so to be filled with awe and wonder and to praise Him for His eternal will worked out in your heart and in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. So next is the calling of God. Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, and whom and, and, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And this brings things down out of the philosophical clouds, down to the ministry of Christ. Because when Jesus did his ministry, he called sinners to follow him. Come, follow me, was his call. And it still happens today that the call is given. But even as the call is given, it, it comes from eternity. And, and the point is, is not to complicate it. Uh, it really is quite simple. Follow me, says Jesus still today. But rather than complicate it, God's foreknowledge and predestination makes it all the more comforting. Follow me, says Jesus, and your sins will be forgiven. You will be counted righteous before God by His obedience. Your past sins will be blotted out. Your future will be secure by the promises of God in the gospel. And yet there's even more. Say yes. Say yes to the call of Christ, and it will reveal that you were foreknown by God that you were predestined by God for salvation so that your yes is only the revelation of God's yes for you. And yet there were those who certainly heard the call of Christ and and answered no. Luke 9 records that uh, as they were going along the road, uh, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Many, in fact, say no. Many say no. And maybe you're ready to say no. And there's really nothing I can do about that but but issue the call of Christ as often and as clearly as I can, perhaps at the risk of irritating you into further unbelief. 
But when you say no to the call of Christ, it only reveals that God has said no to you. And when you say yes, it gives evidence that you have been foreknown and predestined and are now being called to believe in Christ and to be saved. This, I believe, is how we need to hear the call of Christ, even in the gospel record. When Jesus called the fishermen, brothers uh, Peter and Andrew, and brothers James and John, we are told that immediately they left their nets and their boats and followed Jesus. Are we told this to show how spiritually how spiritual these men were, that they immediately left everything to follow Christ? I say no. We are, we are told this, that they immediately left everything to follow Christ to show us the power of Christ's call. The call of Christ to follow him is no less powerful than the command of Christ for the deaf to hear, for the lame to walk, for the blind to see, for the wind and the waves to be still, and for the demons to depart. The call of Christ is powerful. It's not an invitation. It's not, if you want to, come follow me. It's come, follow me. So that by the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who would otherwise be dedicated to their own sinful pleasure might instead be dedicated to Christ. So next is the justification of God. Because this is, uh, this is not about following Christ in order to earn or achieve anything. Uh, certainly not to earn or achieve salvation itself. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, and and note the past tense. To those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. What do we hear from the Apostle's preaching? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be saved. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you, you know, maybe have a better chance of being saved. No, believe and you are saved. And if you're remembering all that we've already covered in, uh, of Paul's teaching in the book of Romans regarding justification, then we don't need to go over all this again. But then again, why not go over it again? Because it's the glory of the gospel. Because it is the amazing grace of God that faith equals salvation. Faith equals salvation. And salvation is ours as our sin is taken away from us and it's put upon Christ. While his righteousness, his perfect obedience is put upon us. It's a double credit if you will. We get the credit for his death on the cross, his payment for us, and we get the credit for his sinless life. It's called double imputation, if you, uh, if you want to hear the, the theological language. 
But, but don't let the language distract you from the glory. It's a done deal. It's past tense. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called with power and authority over them, he justified. And so finally, the glorification of God. Here we have the same problem. Does does the glorification of God refer to God's glory or to God's glory glorification of the sinner? Well, Romans 8, verse 30, clearly refers to our glory, glory, to our arrival in heaven, which makes sense if you, if you think about it. And, and that's the whole idea, that, that we stop and think about it, that if God foreknew us, even from the foundations of the world, if God predestined us to believe and to be saved by faith, if God called us by the powerful call of Christ that even made the wind and the waves to be still, and, and if we by faith have now been justified, then how could it ever be that we will not arrive in heaven in the end? And that's why Paul speaks of everything in the, in the past tense. God foreknew us, God predestined us, God called us, he has justified us so that we have been glorified but I'm not in heaven yet. Where, where is the glory of my glorification? It's, it's yours by faith. And it's yours by the promise of the God whose mind is directing all things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What things? God's foreknowledge. God's predestination. God's effectual calling, as we say. Our justification, our glorification. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The night of bitter grief and sorrow awaits us. It will come. And can we really say that all things work together for our good? Absolutely, we can. Because we are believers in Christ. We have been in and upon the mind of God from all eternity. He has predestined us even to the destiny of heaven. He has called us by a call that overcomes our sin and our stupidity. He has justified us in Christ solely by the faith that he himself gives us. And he has, past tense, he has glorified us in Christ Jesus. Our glorification is past tense because it is from all eternity. Our glory is from the mind of God from all eternity. So will we still refuse him? You can't control the will of God, but you can reveal it. You can reveal it by believing in Christ today. 
And by believing, by answering the call of Christ to to follow him in faith, you will know that God foreknew you, that he has predestined you, that he has called you, that he has justified you, and that the eternal glory of heaven is no less yours than the grief and the sorrow of this short life. Amen. Let's pray. These things, O God, are heady, they are difficult, and yet they are glorious. If along with faith you will give us the humility to accept these things and to experience the assurance that we are in your hands, and we are in your hands because we are in your mind even from all eternity. Grant us, O God, to put down our pride and to take up faith and to be richly blessed in the knowledge of who you are, the God who saves sinners and who saves them, who saves us to the uttermost. In Christ's name do we pray. Amen.